Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing, meaningful work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they're all very well known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So they really are brilliant uh, and they're committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people, sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing, things that they're passionate about. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have on my show uh, Dr. Jasleen Panu, and Dr. Panu is an interventional pulmonologist. She is an assistant professor and director of the Interventional Pulmonology Translational Research uh, at the James uh, at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She received her medical degree from Goa Medical College in India, and Dr. Uh, Panu did a residency at Western Reserve Care System in Youngstown, Ohio, and did fellowships at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Bridgeport Hospital in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She describes herself as an early lung cancer detection and prevention enthusiast. So I love that. We're going to talk about that. Um, and so Dr. Panu, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure. It's great to see you. And I know we talked uh, recently uh, getting to know each other, and it was really great to hear your story. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, and so I'd like to start by having you tell us about yourself. Uh, as I like to say sometimes, the the younger uh, Jasleen Penu. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. So um, I was born in New Delhi, India, or a small little town next to New Delhi, India. My dad um, was an army officer, and um, he had been that all his life Uh, and my mother was uh, actually a high school principal so um, I was the only child I was um, or I am their only child and um, they spent a considerable time of their married life without a child actually uh, of about 18 years they were married before they actually had me so um, for that time was was a big deal for them. And then my my father was still in the army, and um, I was born in one of uh, the hospitals related to the armed forces. And then I grew up uh, just about two hundred miles northwest of that town in um, in a beautiful city. It's called Chandigarh. It's a it's a metro, but uh, it's a very forward uh, city. Very upcoming in education, advanced, and um, a very upbeat city of that uh, of, of the country with a lot of stress on good education. So my parents were all about giving me the best education possible so that they could equip me uh, in my life to be as successful as possible. Uh, we were uh, not rich, we were also not poor you know, uh, middle class, but uh, uh, a lot of love was given to me during my childhood uh, and a lot of stress on, you know, how to be financially independent and a lot of core values. 
and uh, how to be just independent and strong by myself. I think they were aware that I am by myself, don't have any siblings. So they were um, raising me up to be like that. So that was really, uh, you know, sort of beginning of me. <laughs> yeah. Did that, did you, um, when you were younger, did you always want to be a doctor or when did, the, when did that um, kind of strike you as your fancy? You know, for as long as I remember, that's always what I wanted to be. I was um, right from the very uh, beginning when I was like five years old playing with my grandfather, I would play doctor and, you know, do fake surgeries uh, <laughs> with like fake knives, you know, on his big belly. Oh, that's and, funny. Uh, uh, and, you know, watch all kind of doctor shows and if there was a, we were watching a movie and it would be a hospital scene, I would make everybody be quiet. And because I really wanted oh to zone, zone into it. So I was, uh, so I think that bit of me was, was growing and I, I could not relate to other professions as much as I could to this one, even though actually I was very good um, in mathematical uh, sciences as well as physics or um, you know something else related to computers that uh, I would probably uh, still do well at but I could not fathom sitting behind a desk and just working with numbers and the human touch was like uh, something that invigorated me so I had like uh, you know, basically everything a child would do that would be close to being a, a physician, you know, make my own little potions and uh, <laughs> playing doctor like all the time. Uh, so actually, I never thought of being anything else, really. Oh, actually, I'll, I'll take that back. Every uh, young girl that grows up in India also dreams of being, you know, uh, a Bollywood star. Or, uh, you know, so that's that's the other dream that every every young girl that grows up in India has. That was other thing. But then the other more like <laughs> real life dream was uh, dream was being a, a doctor. Yeah. You know, I'm always I'm a very curious person. So I, I'm cu I'm curious where I get the Bollywood thing. But uh, were there were, were there a lot of young girls that also were like you that wanted to be uh, doctors or, or were you, did you kind of stand out in that way? A lot of kids, when they are growing up, they may say doctor um, actually as one of the things they want to be. However, if from my class, I think um, of the 50 kids that were in my class, I think there were probably three or four that were ultimately physicians. So, yes, you know, when you're growing up in India, you, a lot of kids are, are either told to be that they should be doctors or they say, because it's a common um, goal that's given to a child. But um, for me, it was different because it wasn't given to me really. In fact, my um, father would sometimes, you know, try to make me be a little less intense because he used to be we worried like, you know, this is going to be hard. And, and he would say like, you know, you can, it doesn't, life doesn't have to be so tough. Maybe you can do like a, science degree and get close to that maybe you can work with plants why work with humans <laughs> that may be stressful you know so 
he he understood i i think if i was a bit driven since the very beginning so he used to worry that it's going to be uh it's going to occupy her life which probably it, it did but he he tried to tell me that it's okay to to not you know to not always want to do that my mom all the on the other hand was like you know always uh behind the drive and he would she would be like pushing me towards getting uh to my goal and encouraging me to look beyond that too like if you're wanting to be a physician but have you thought what kind and what is in it each kind and which one are you thinking of so in my education uh my mom really drove me towards a goal to find uh, a goal in everything while my dad was more like you know she, he already saw that i was driven but he always told me to make sure just keep a balance don't get too intense with it that sounds like a really great balance between your parents i i think it's interesting i think of my wife and i when we raised our our kids we we kind of had a great balance as well i think the combination of our our two personalities was really helpful and it sounds like they were very supportive of your of your path did 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 you or your parents think that you'd end up coming to the United States to to practice or did they think that you might stay in India and do your practice so my parents are not physicians and actually nobody in my family was a physician was a practicing physician so uh, their knowledge about where careers would lead was limited it was gotcha. really through me so if i but they did they believe it that i would be somewhere outside the country no they didn't because the general belief was that being outside of india would uh, in in another currency would obviously cost a lot of money med schools are very expensive outside and how would that even be possible um and this uh, opportunity of uh, where uh, usa would hire um talented physicians from other uh, countries where you know you have to achieve a certain amount of success in an exam and uh, through your own worth you can you have the opportunity to prove it on an international ground they they had they did not have an idea about that so when i first told them um i told my dad uh, that you know this is an opportunity and i want to answer all these exams and that was four in number there were three uh two that i could take in india but two that i had to take in the united states and i said i want to prepare for it and i i i need a year after my med school to try to do this because i was really inspired by the healthcare system as we saw it from the outside of how it was compassionate towards patients uh as well as it was in an environment where uh, a good care could be given over um a dedicated amount of time for the patients and sometimes in country like india that was um we were set behind in that a lot of times because uh, we were so lacking in time that could be given to patients as well as there was um a huge population and supply de- deficit that's there so i wanted to train myself in the most appropriate and uh, i would say excellent care that could be delivered and i wanted to be that physician which i thought would be hard to train myself in india so um i saw that as 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 my future when i when i uh, saw some others 
um, who were my colleagues pursue it, I it, it just seems as seemed as the next best best step as if it was my future to me. So when I brought this up to my parents that that was the process, now actually they did not believe it. I do not <laughs> think my dad believed it because he's like, so you will answer these exams and you would be a physician in the US. Is it that way? And he he did not doubt that I wouldn't make it. You know, he just thought I do not know really process. So he was just humoring me. He said, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a funny way to put it. Yeah. And so, then because later he told me, he said, actually, I never really believed you. And then you told me you have an interview. And I'm like, really? And then I said, okay, let, let her go to the interview. And then you're telling me that... <laughs> <laughs> that you actually made it so yeah but but i think they they had this thing that where they would just let me uh if i if i was convinced about something they would let me do it and maybe find out myself whether it worked or not yeah wow that's so funny um thanks for sharing that and so i'm curious to know uh you know after after medical school you know that how how you Talk to us about the path to interventional pulmonology and, you know, this passion about, you know, early lung cancer and stuff that you're working on. But how, how did you, when you graduated from medical school and you, and you uh, then ended up, I think, I guess after that you were at, did you start the Mayo Clinic in the United States after medical school? No, oh, no, I you was, were at, at Western Reserve. Sorry. That's correct. That's correct. So, um, after medical school and after I, I knew I, I wanted to look for a future here in the United States and train myself here, um, I, of course, pursued what was necessary to get my certifications as a, as a foreign medical graduate. And then I was able to um, get a residency here in um, Youngstown, Ohio, actually, very small town, but the first town that introduced me to the United States. Uh, and my residency program was actually very... Uh, very well structured and uh, very encouraging to uh, interns and residents, especially towards pulmonary critical care, because we had a strong group of physicians that did that. And also they were very academically encouraging in the same. So when I started internal medicine, I actually did not know at all about intervention pulmonology. And that was back in 2010. And intervention pulmonology was not a big field by that time. Um, I only knew the very next step, and and that's how I've reached here. So um, in internal medicine, I knew that I wanted to pursue critical care, and uh, because I was really interested in ICU and and patients and their um, issues with their lungs that would keep them either on ventilators. So I pursued that as a next step of fellowship, and that brought me to uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester for my critical care fellowship. And then, of course, when you're at Mayo Clinic, then uh, a lot of horizons open for you because that's where all subspecialties that uh, would be existed. So I was introduced to this field of interventional pulmonology then, and um, I met a, a wonderful group of mentors at uh, Mayo Clinic. It was um, Dr. Fabian Maldonado, uh, Dr. John Mullen, Dr. Eric Adele, who were pioneers in, in that field at that time. And Dr. Maldonado actually was also from Youngstown in the same program where I was educated mm. in from, a, from several years ago. So he became my mentor. And I, even though I was doing critical care on the side, I was working with him on his research projects as well as 
spending time in the bronchoscopy suite where these procedures were being performed. So I, uh, this, this field opened up for me there. And I understood that this was a field that would require some special attention and, and it was growing. And, I, and for, because I wanted to explore more of this, I further pursued my, my uh, pulmonology fellowship, which was a requirement for, this, for pursuing this field. And I kept testing myself throughout that, just testing if I really wanted to do this. Then I um, spent a month at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, training in interventional pulmonology, where I was one of the interventional pulmonology teams. And um, then I, I really knew that this is really what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, because it, it does involve working very closely with patients who have lung cancer. It's intense. It includes high-precision uh, procedures, sometimes high-risk procedures, which are done on patients, most of them who do have lung cancer. So personally, um, emotionally, and physically, it can be intense. So it requires a certain uh, kind of person to pursue this. And I, I found that I fit perfectly. And also by exclusion, I didn't think I fit anywhere else. So um, it, it, that, that thought always gives me my way. So um, then, I, then I was able to work with Dr. Maldonado again, uh, and Dr. Otis Rickman and Dr. Rob Lenz in Vanderbilt University, where I did my interventional pulmonology fellowship. And uh, then I found my first job at uh, the Ohio State University Medical Center in 2018. Yeah, and now, and now you're uh, in Ohio. Yes. And uh, I know we talked when we first met, we, you talked about, you know, initiating um, this program and your motivation. And I'd love to have you tell us about Know, how you how you got this going at o, at Ohio State and and uh, what's your experience has been and how it took off. So when I started working at Ohio State, um, we noticed that a lot of young patients were showing up with advanced stage lung cancer, and it was uh, more in volumes that I had known or experienced in all these other places that I had worked in, and it was. Uh, surprising at the same time it was um, disheartening and uh, we felt or I felt that uh, something needed to be done about it and while this difference was striking the reason behind it was still unclear why would that be is that more risk factors here is there something in the environment the demographics um, what is it and at at the same time we started noticing uh, our interventional pulmonology services was growing. So I started noticing uh, some cases which were showing up as late stage disease. But if you were to look at their scans from the past, that some of that, some, sometimes their CT scans would have telltale signs of early lung cancer that uh, were either missed or overlooked because at that time, probably something else was happening with the patient. Either he had abdominal pain or someone was there after um, a traumatic injury or a, or a heart attack. And these, these small findings that at that time were small were being missed. So that seemed like uh, an area where, where, there, where we could make a difference. Um, when I delve deeper in it, I realized that that is not a small area, actually. It's a, it's a huge area because in order to find lung cancer early, there's really two ways. Either we find it through screening, uh, that is the high-risk 
patients who have had a significant amount of smoking in their lives, they do a yearly scan, but the rates of those scans are quite low. Still, a lot of people don't get screening. Um, and the other way, actually, majority of times where early lung cancer is found is actually accidentally, where it's unintentional and patients end up getting scans for some other reasons and uh, someone finds an early sign of a suspicious spot in the lung and they act on it on time and that's how early cancer is find, found. So actually, early cancer found accidentally is about four times more than it's found by screening. So it is really the major way to find early cancer. And then I looked into how often uh, even physicians or say even pulmonologists act uh, on these findings and how often are these found, findings found. While they are commonly found, um, as physicians and, and uh, healthcare providers, as well as hospital systems, we were not that good at uh, following these up properly. And um, a study had said that about only 29% of these find findings are, are followed properly. And 70% had either completely missed them or not followed them properly or, or had a delayed follow-up. And that was seemed like a huge missed opportunity. And it's not because of carelessness, really. It's, it's, it's because the volume of these findings are huge. They're in thousands. And uh, they may be found in emergency rooms or when, when somebody is admitted where there is not, uh, where follow-up in clinic is not the same person who orders a scan. So it's really a system issue. And yeah. you cannot be one, one thing or one person or just a few physicians uh, which, which needed uh, some sort of fixing. But when it happens on such a large level, it's really a systems issue about how um, how the whole healthcare system was functioning. Uh, and maybe this, this was something that was falling through the cracks. And it was also um, almost uh, astonishing because most of the health systems were worried about this because uh, obviously it, it, it hurts the patient when they, uh, you know, are found years later after the initial signs of malignancy were found. But it's also uh, quite, a, quite a liability on systems when, when we miss cases like this, because it's, it's higher cost, as well as um, a risk for the patients when you find initial scans for, that may be telltale signs of cancer and nothing is done about it for several years. So many health systems had raised a concern or wanted to do about it, something about it, but there wasn't something well known of how to handle this problem because there was a, there is a huge volume. Um, so how how what what is the protocol of trying to manage this large volume and what is the liability behind it and what are the rules of doing it? So what I started to do was first we I wanted to look at our own data at Ohio State how how we were doing. So I conducted uh, a research study at our own hospital to find out how much um, were we doing correctly and what was our gap or deficit that we needed to fill. And our numbers were close, were better than the national numbers, but they, they were close. Um, they were about 60% of scans with truly incidental findings that we were not following appropriately according to the guidelines. 
and more from similar reasons of large volume of these scans and uh, lack of a, of a systematic system. And that made, uh, and then I ended up looking into what solutions were uh, showing up um, nationally or internationally for, for issues like this to manage them on a, on a large scale. This was obviously not something that a person can manage with Excel files manually if there were, say, hundreds of scans coming in every week. Because not only do you have to scan the in, look at for the initial scan, but what needs to be done about uh, that scan? Does the patient need a biopsy? Who does the biopsy? Was the biopsy done? Does the patient follow up with that biopsy? What is done for that biopsy? Does the patient need a scan in three months, six months, one year? Does the patient get that scan? Who sends the reminders? Is, is everybody being told? So it's not just that one initial scan from the whole, you know, say about thousands of scans. It's also what happens in follow-up. So the workload is exponential. So it needed a, a multifaceted program of at different levels so that we could minimize these patients falling through the cracks as much as possible. And lung nodule management is also not very straightforward. It's not just always ordering another scan. It's not always just sending for a biopsy. It, a, a lung nodule may need to be managed differently depending on each patient, what their diseases are, um, what their lungs look like, uh, what other spots are there. So it may involve a whole area of other specialties, including pulmonology, surgery, uh, oncology, radiology. So it's the care is complex, just as cancer care is complex. And it was, it's also important to, to add to this uh, multidisciplinary management, uh, very thoughtful and methodical management because there may be a huge number of nodules found every year, which is 1.5 million nationwide but only 10% of these are malignant and 90% would be benign. So you have to sift through them very, very carefully so that you're not doing extra procedures on patients who don't need it, as well as not missing the ones that have truly cancer. So there's so many layers of management at, at such high volumes. And then that led me to um, talk to several programs and these solutions that were being made nationwide. And um, and from there, we started uh, this process of trying to discover more and more um, about this um, lung nodule management system that, that we ultimately um, work towards developing. Yeah, it's, it is so complex. And thank you for, for explaining that, because I think oftentimes, you know, we're screaming from the rooftops, you know, to, to get more lung cancer screening because the rates are like 6%, right? And you know, the rate of like mammograms in women is like 70%. Yes. But you're, you're talking about such a complex issue with all these nodules that, and, and the fact that four times more early cancer is found through incidental findings than it is through lung cancer screening. So yeah. it's like, we, we need both, but it's like, so it, it, it's an area that I, as a non-scientist, I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm so grateful that there are people like you that are, uh, and many others at other institutions that are that are doing this intervention work, you know, to try to, to, to improve that because as you know, I had, I had a pneumonia. And so thankfully I was able to get, um, a CT scan, uh, eventually. Yes. Um, but, uh, so many people end up not getting until it's late until it's later stage. And all of us are fighting to get 
diagnose it at an earlier stage in lung cancer because we know that the the outcomes are so much um, more positive, you know, if that's the case. So exactly, I really appreciate the work you do. I wanted to talk to you. One thing that we talked about uh, when we met, I thought was really interesting when you were talking about some of the, you know, the communication barriers between patients and physicians and, and, you know, the interaction and, and, you know, more being more free to, you know, to, to engage with patients on an emotional level. I'd love to, that's really interesting to me because I just love, you know, physicians who have that perspective and it's great for patients to hear, you know, physicians who are really, who think that's so important. So I'd love to have you just tell us about that. Yes. And I was not that aware of this uh, till I started practicing until uh, very recently. And as I worked more and more on this um, early detection and lung nodule program here, that I realized that this was an issue that even I was not uh, probably subconsciously aware of, but not uh, did not realize how, how big this is. And um, this is something that is... Um, probably more unique at this time to lung cancer because of the kind of stigma of smoking is associated um, with the occurrence of this disease. And we as interventional pulmonologists are usually the first um, gateway person that sees a patient who may potentially have cancer. So they usually um, see come to our office with their initial scare that this is possibly cancer, you need to see somebody who does biopsies. So we, the emotional aspect, you know, there involves uh, the anxiety behind uh, having something that's called cancer, which is always very, very um, a difficult uh, diagnosis to deal with. And usually we are the ones delivering the first news because we do the biopsy. So we do d- deliver the news first, if it's a diagnosis, as well as some aspect of staging. One, what is the diagnosis and how, how far along in the stage is it so it's usually us um we are also collecting information about what's the risks and talking a lot about uh, the patient's background that makes us decide um what's the most likely diagnosis and guides our procedures so that exposes us to the to these emotions of first time diagnosis and what what that would be and i noticed something which I thought I had noticed less with other um, malignancies was uh, this feeling of a lot of guilt and blame that the patients um, feel um, the moment they are uh, confronted this with this prospect of you may have lung cancer, which they immediately, all, almost subconsciously go into a, a guilt mode or an ex- explanatory mode about Oh, I had Spartan. Has I have a Spartan lung? Oh, I never smoked, or um, I never smoked, but my husband did for a long time, or uh, or uh, oh, I did smoke for a really long time, but I quit. I quit ten years ago. Uh, is that was that not enough? So it's it's always about you know trying to rationalize why why that happened, and uh, sometimes even acceptance like. Oh, I still smoke. I can't. I can't give up cigarettes. So I got this. So, um, and I see similar emotions in in families also, um, where there is um, where there is subconsciously placing some guilt on. You know, hey, I I asked you to stop smoking, then you didn't smoke. You know, uh, they, they didn't stop. Or and sometimes I think a lot of physicians maybe uh, maybe at least. Um, 
in in the way we we communicate we may be subconsciously putting that on the patient that oh you know the from the very first um uh, chief complaint is oh you have a spot in the lung and then our next question is have you smoked in the past or and it's nothing wrong with it but however it's it's uh, it's oh, this whole conundrum of telltale signs of interactions between the patient which um, which which highlight that there's a, a huge underlying stigma uh, and then you know like we were speaking about earlier i doubt that when uh, when when a visit like this where there's a possible uh, cancer diagnosis happens in in most other cancers uh, there's probably not that much explanation a patient you know presents for themselves as if you know just feeling guilty or or explaining themselves and on top of dealing with a cancer diagnosis also dealing with being at fault for having that cancer and not um, and feeling that they don't deserve that much sympathy or empathy to to deal with it or support or maybe maybe because of all this also getting even less support um, almost made made to feel like you deserve what's happened almost because you you took that decision in your life thirty years ago or forty years ago so. That was um, um, something that I started realizing more recently, and I and I felt the the impact a lot of times when uh, when I gave somebody the news of the diagnosis, where the first um, reaction of somebody would be uh, sort of justifying the diagnosis, almost like, yeah, what else would I expect? I I got cancer because I couldn't stop smoking, or almost justifying their have them having the disease. So um, that that is something that I feel is is unique to to lung cancer, and we as a community, not just physicians and patients, but as a community, should bring up and talk more about this disease, and rather than having stigma uh, around it, more having support. Because at this time, whatever we do now, or things that may be okay to do now. 30 years later, we may learn they were not okay or they were associated with some risks or something that, that may have may cause a disease several years later. But we cannot blame ourselves for doing taking decisions right now for something we were not aware of in the future and what probably would, would have been a part of culture at that point. And um, even so otherwise, it's not always that you know lung cancer happens in patients only who smoke. Anybody with lungs can get lung cancer. So why uh, is is the first uh, instinct towards shifting blame on something? And uh, so it should be, our reaction should be more towards support and finding solutions um, for patients um, and more empathy, just like any other cancer would be, you know? So um, th- this is a, an area about, about lung cancer. I think we're starting to make small steps as more and more people are talking about it and are normalizing talking about lung cancer, and as well as steps towards take, uh, preventing lung cancer, like um, normalizing lung cancer screening. Uh, just like it's normal to get mammograms, it's normal to get pap smears, uh, colon, colonoscopies for colon cancer. Let's, it should be okay to say we need lung cancer screening. And maybe, maybe in future, you may broaden it to include even more uh, populations and not just the at-risk populations. Um, 
where it may be needed for almost everybody considering the the the, the large amount of numbers that we're getting there's more research needed uh, in that to make sure that we are allocating resources properly but that may not be something unreasonable that may be a thing of the future uh, but but and that that also made us um, talk about the low rates of screening and i wonder if such low rates of screening are likely due to the stigma behind, uh, you know, walking in and getting getting yourself tested, right? Uh, just as as you are scared to go to a dentist office and trying to find something you don't want to find and want to put it out and put it out and put it out because the what's the dentist going to say? They're <laughs> going to say you did not brush your teeth, didn't you know? floss, <laughs> yeah, you, you haven't didn't been flossing, floss. <laughs> and then you walk out with your head down, guilty, like oh. Of course, yeah. I didn't floss, and then I, I, I ate some barbecue, and obviously, I don't brush at night, and whatever. So it's a, uh, it's it's this feeling you never feel <laughs> if you find out something in dentist office, you always blame yourself. It's it's almost like that. So um, it's it's another analogy, but in in a more serious way, this is something that you know maybe um, patients who who also know that they're at risk always probably subconsciously put off because they are uh, scared of finding bad news. Uh, but we need to talk about it more and more so that you know it's not a stigma and it's something that is part of people's lives, uh, just like other screenings are. So I think that those, those aspects need to be highlighted. Oh, yeah, and we could talk for hours about this because that it, it's the combination of the, the folks who unfortunately suffer from a tobacco addiction um, and then there's the ones, you know, that we're seeing more and more who are younger, who who don't have a history of smoking. And I love the, you said, you know, I'm in the white ribbon project because, you know, that's the mission, you know, it's yeah. anybody with lungs can get lung cancer. So we're all striving for the same. We're all striving to not, not put the blame or have people that have a, an addiction to tobacco to feel guilty about that or that they, and that's why they're not getting screened. And I know that that's a huge reason why they're not. And but there's also, are there are there doctors not um, recommending screen? There's there's just so many parts to this yeah. that it's so. But I appreciate that that you know the the word that I'm taking away from all the things that you just said is empathy. And I feel like that's what I'm learning more and more is that the, the more empathy would make the healthcare system better. And uh, outcomes would improve, and it's and it's empathy all around, as you as you as you've described it, right? So it's not just you know doctors and other people in the care team have to have empathy, but people have to give themselves grace too to yeah to say it's not my fault, or you know the tobacco companies you know have been proven to be dis deceitful in how they marketed drug uh, their their yeah. product over the years. So again, we could talk for hours about it, but thank you so much for you know, for sharing the, the, the important work that you're doing um, um, as an interventional pulmonologist. And I, I, I'd like to end with one, with, with one question that I always um, ask my guests, which is um, outside of work, if you could tell us something that you're passionate about and maybe not everybody knows about you. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I am. I mean to put you on the spot. I'll give you a couple of seconds to think about it, but. No, outside of work, I, uh, I, I, I'm passionate about a creative side of me, and that includes. Um, so I will I will paint sometimes, mm. and um, you know I do acrylic sort of modern art uh, sometimes, 
uh, and I have a my basement is my creative haven. <laughs> so so people enter my house and if you if you open my basement is that I also um, uh, in I'm into performance arts. So I'm into theater and um, I was engaged in you know acting and drama as well as uh, dance. So uh, I use those to, uh, you know, as as a way of one is, you know, withdrawing from the more logical scientific world a little bit. And creativity has uh, has a way of of driving your passions and making you more creative where you can think of of newer ideas that you could use in science. So it also invigorates uh, uh, the scientific and improvement projects. So that's the other side of me. It's it's personal. It's private, but it's um, it's it's something that that is my safe haven. That I, I love into. that. I love it. So we're not going to see you on stage somewhere on Broadway or anything uh, coming up soon. <laughs> Maybe that's where I'll retire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, you know, I, I as I as I said earlier, I, I I'm just so thankful for the work that you do on uh, supporting the lung cancer community and. Uh, intervention and all the, all the good work that you and uh, your colleagues are doing. And I just really uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dave.